Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Whenever that's happened to me, I've always managed to regain power by using that to my advantage. If this man is a total sleazy asshole, then flay him. You know, make him think that you're a bimbo and extract the information from him. And before he knows it, he, you've, you know, got your scoop. And that a male journalist would have struggled to get. A journalist's career can follow a winding path from an English village to London, from Pakistan to New York City, and even to the heart of North Korea. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about digital media. Today on the phone, I'm talking to Charlotte Dubach, a New York-based on-screen correspondent and documentary producer at Vice Media. Welcome to the podcast, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so, so flattered and honored to be talking to you. No, I'm I'm flattered and honored that uh, you you deigned to be on our podcast. I uh, just to give people a sort of a background here. Over the holidays, I spent a lot of time watching YouTube videos, and I came upon a whole set of videos called Munchies. It's put out, I guess, it's put out by Vice, and it's about you know food and travel and local culture. And Charlotte was in some of those, and I thought they were really great. And I started checking out some of her other content, and of course, you've done some fashion stuff as well. But then also, well, you ended up in North Korea, which I think we're going to talk about. But anyway, let's let's start with that. How did you get? You know, what's your career path? How did you get to this place as a correspondent producer at Vox? Vox, I said that said Vox. Vox. How did you do that? You do that? <laughs> well, let's look into the crystal ball. My my job at Vox. Anyway, uh, no, yeah. Do you know what? So many people are confused by my trajectory or intrigued, I should say. Oh, and it's kind of hard to like summarize. But I mean, when, on good days, I'm like, oh, look at my varied career. I must be a polymath. And on bad days, I'm like, I must be a jack of all trades, master of none. <laughs> like, I. I've been at Vice for eight years, and it's the only job I've ever had in media. Yeah. How did you, I mean, you know, you, you weren't born there. Uh, you were born in <laughs> England or Great Britain, I, I, I assume. Um, yeah. what, what attracted you to Vice? I have, ever since I can remember, ever since I was sort of pre-teen, felt very drawn to America. And I'm not embarrassed to say it. I grew up in a little village in the south of England. I came from a fairly sort of straightforward traditional British family, very conservative. And, you know, my life looked pretty limited. You know, it was like marry a boy in the village and have a few kids. And I just, I know it's cliched and embarrassing, but I was very much a black sheep and none of the women in my family had had much of an education. And um, I was just very understimulated. And then, you know, at the time when I grew up, I'm, I'm 33, so I started watching E.T. I watched E.T. and there was pizza and Walkmans and stuff. And, and <laughs> then we got MTV and I was completely captivated by MTV and I was obsessed with like rap videos. And I just thought that America looked like this magical world. And I just thought I've got to get there. I've got to see it. And I became very obsessed with it at a young age. And then... I ended up studying American studies at university in London, which is most Americans laugh at that, but 
it's basically cultural studies, but focuses on America. And um, well, I wouldn't laugh. I that. We're, so, we're so important that it, we we need a whole we need a whole, uh, need a whole s- subject matter dedicated to uh, our culture. And our... Exactly. And so I was obsessed with America, but I didn't. When I was a child, I didn't know that that journalism was a thing. I didn't know. I loved documentaries. I was a bit of a nerd. I used to watch nature programs and then I really loved Louis Theroux's documentaries. But I didn't know that was a job, let alone something that I could do a little girl from the home counties. And there was not much guidance, you know, from my family or my school as to career paths. I was quite good at languages. So they just thought I'd maybe go and like, you know, do translating for a bit and then get married. Anyway, I got to college and suddenly realized that journalism was a thing and I'd picked up Vice and the voice of Vice really resonated with me. I don't know what it was. I just thought these people are hilarious and they're funny. They're funny, hilarious, they're smart, and they're not afraid, you know, they're kind of contrary. And I had a rebellious streak and I was like, I would need to be friends with these people. From what I could tell, they were, it was a male voice. I hadn't really heard women talk like that, but it really struck a chord with me. And then I was living in London and I got involved in the social scene in London. I was professionally DJing at one point. And I ended up just somehow making friends with people socially that worked at Vice. And the next thing I knew, I was writing music reviews for the magazine. Some people said to me, not naming any names, you're quite funny for a girl, which was a compliment at the time. And lo and behold, I start working at Vice. They didn't have any money, so I was an intern. And I was writing. Then, then I was told... We need, this was in 2010, and they said, we need fashion stories. And I said, the fashion world hates Vice. You know, they thought we were going to roast them. So we weren't allowed, Vice wasn't invited to Fashion Week or to do any fashion coverage. So I just did a bit of Googling, and I discovered that the first ever Fashion Week was taking place in Pakistan within two weeks' time. And I told my boss, thinking he'd either laugh at me or say great and he'd send someone to cover it not expecting him to say have you ever been on camera would you be interested in going with a camera and trying to make something out of it and I just sort of said no of course I don't want to be on camera I'm who wants another white well-spoken girl on camera plus I'm too shy and awkward and I don't want to do it um anyway (laughs) somehow I found myself on a plane to Pakistan two weeks later with my friend and a camera and we kind of made a film and we didn't have a plan and we came back and people liked it. And so we pitched another 10 episodes. And that was my very first job. I mean, I'd written a few music reviews and suddenly I was, you know, a video journalist. And and I I, I literally had to buy a book like Documentary 101, How to Make Films. (laughs) And we just would kind of film our articles is how we talked about it. And that was how I got into Vice. And then, and then there's a lot more to it, but that's the long version of my start. That's a really good start. And there are a couple of things in there. I mean, your awkwardness, your, you know, <laughs> that works for you in your, in your on-screen presence. Thank God, because I think otherwise I'm completely unemployable. No, the fact that, you know, you play, you know, rugby or you, you play <laughs> yeah, forgot uh, about that. lingerie football, even though you weren't in lingerie. The way you do your videos are very entertaining. They're very accessible. They're also very smart. You know, we talk about fashion. People don't always think of fashion in cultural terms. And that's something that, that's like throughout the fashion coverage that you do. Is it, has that been sort of a conscious decision on your part? Absolutely. I mean, I never 
wanted to be a fashion journalist and I didn't have much reverence for the fashion world. Although, look, I love clothes and I am quite particular about my own style. It really wasn't something that drove me professionally. I didn't want to be a fashion journalist. I wanted to do culture. And, you know, a lot of people... Once I finished the Fashion Week series, they said, oh, well, you've got to do more fashion stories. And I just said, if you watch the show, it's really not got nothing to do with fashion. It's about people expressing themselves and people struggling. And it's, it's a kind of lens on culture, using fashion as an excuse. And I don't want to say that being fashion, a fashion journalist is, I don't want to poo-poo it. I just wouldn't be any good at it. Yeah, it's funny because your approach to it is is really interesting it sort of draws you in i'm thinking particularly we talked we're going to talk about north korea but you had done a piece about the south korean fashion week and you know that one is very much about you sort of walking around their popular culture and going to different sort of events and it's almost as if the fashion week is your access into that world exactly yeah you've hit the nail on the head it's sort of like i accepted the fact that i looked physically like I might I'm kind of supposed to be at fashion week that was like the ruse inherent in in the in the format of the show like this is a girl who looks like she has the authority to talk about fashion because you know she can't help it she was born tall and skinny but honestly I you know I've never modeled you know I did a bit for my friends but I didn't want to but people would talk to me and open up to me at the fashion weeks because they thought I had a place to be there, which is a, such a sad thing because I was the stereotype of, you know, what fashion was. So I'd go around the world and they'd be like, oh, this, you know, like white models come to talk to us. This is interesting. But I just wanted to know what made people tick. And I just was trying to ask the questions and tell the stories that I would want to watch as an audience member to the vice audience. It was very simple. It was just a way of finding out what makes young people tick all around the world And what makes people, you know, what people are doing with sex and all the things that young people care about, sex, music, clothes, you know, and it was just a way of doing that. And the fashion week was like a jumping off point. And then we could go and explore other parts of society with that as the excuse. Yeah, it's funny you you talk about your appearance and and how that sort of gives you access to things. I'm thinking about uh, the one I watched a couple of nights ago, it was um, about, it was uh, the one in New York, but it wasn't a regular fashion week. It was the other flat fashion week for full-figured fashion week. Yeah. Full-figured fashion week. And it's great because you tell the story, all the stories in it are positive, but actually the, the, the negative that you come across is when you go to, you know, the, the high class section of New York and you start talking to people. And I wonder if, if your appearance makes it easier for them to open up and say some actually very negative and ugly things. And it's an incredible contrast between, you know, we just watched 20 minutes of of people talking about, you know, positivity and positive attitude towards body image and, you know, their creativity and the way they express themselves. And then you have these other people who are being super judgmental, super negative about that. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Joan Didion wrote in her fantastic essay, Slouching Toward Bethlehem, that people would just, you know, tell her every anything because she was so small and she's a woman. She wasn't she didn't seem remotely threatening. She said something like, you know, people didn't think that my interests were counter to their own when they always were. And so she managed to get the scoop that way because she just didn't seem threatening. And, and in a way, I have always just used myself as a tool in that way people make assumptions about other people because of the way they look still. And 
I've had to use that to my advantage. And actually, it's come, It's I've been thinking about it a lot more recently because with everything that's been going on, how culture's shifted and, you know, we're talking about gender equality and sexual harassment and all the stuff that's sort of the kind of fizzing in our culture at the moment. And I have been hearing a lot of female journalists talk about the struggle they have and how much harder it is to be a female journalist when you have to deal with your sources being sleazy or you're trying to interview someone and they all they want to do is get in your underwear and they don't respect you. And yes, it's not the most fun, but, you know, whenever that's happened to me, I've always managed to regain power by using that to my advantage. If this man is a total sleazy asshole, then flay him you know, make him think that you're a bimbo and extract the information from him. And before he knows it, he, you've, you know, got your scoop and that a male journalist would have struggled to get <laughs> because, you know, he is not as attractive to the source. And I know that probably sounds like an ancient form of feminism, but, you know, you can't deny nature. And I've always found that you've just got to work with the tools that you're given. Yeah. And the other thing about, about your approach and I think you kind of addressed this before, but when you sort of show up at these things, and I think this is probably you sort of identifying with how your audience would be would would be interested in this story. They wouldn't be necessarily interested in the highly produced, you know, by the book, you know, story. You know, it's very much you wandering in, you sort of assessing it, you talking to people who interest you. It's very informal. Yeah. Well, there are a few reasons for that. <laughs> the The first reason is that at that time, Vice was still on the up and we had very small budgets and very few resources. So we did little to no pre-production on these shoots. I'd do as much research as I could, talk to as many people as I could from my desk in London. I'd make a few phone calls to the country I was going to and try and get a lay of the land. But really it was like, we're gonna have to hit the ground running and follow our nose and talk to people that, and trust our judgment. So we were like self-commissioning on the hoof, like casting people as we went, Exactly as you just described, that you're watching the production process unfold on camera. <laughs> There's a lot of sincerity in this. You're you're having fun. You're this is this is kind of your approach, and that's kind of part of what the appeal is. It's like you know, it, it's that sort of authenticity that I think, you know, a lot of audiences now, especially younger audiences, appreciate. They don't want something necessarily produced. That doesn't mean you, you there isn't some thought in production that's gone into it and that you're not going to improve in a way to try to present things better. It's just just kind of the way it came. So tell me about that because you're no longer in front of the camera, you're, you're behind the camera. How is that different? How is that show different, State of Undress? So I'd shot like 15 episodes of Fashion Week International and I was desperate to try something else. I was exhausted by it and I, you know, I was young and I wanted to do different types of stories, not just f through fashion. And they were asking me to do more, and I just said no. And I hadn't done any episodes for about six months, and then Vice announced it was launching a TV channel called Viceland. And I got some calls saying, Shah, we want to bring some of the old content to the channel, to the new audience. We're going to have bigger budgets, more resources. We can do all the things you would have dreamed of doing with that show, but we'll have give you a proper team. Because it was usually just me and a shooter me and my director, Will Fairman. But they said, you know, we'll give you a proper TV budget and a big crew and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought this sounds amazing. But I also said, I don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth. You know, I, I want to be on TV and I want to bring my baby to TV. But I just can't face it. I'm older now. I've moved on. I. It wasn't that I wanted to do things to be taken more seriously, but I just thought that needed a fresh 
entirely fresh look. And I also thought, I want to get into production. I want to see if I can produce something, direct something. And I think it will really enrich me as a host if I decide to go back on camera and it would just be good for me. So we struggled to find the right host. I can tell you about that if you're interested. But once we did, I mean, it was it's really Haley's show. And it was thanks to how fantastic she is and how she and I are just so on the same page and the collaboration and the fantastic team we managed to build around it that that show has also just been such a success in its own right. And I'm just thrilled with it. What is the experience for you as a, as a producer that's so different from what you're doing or what you were doing before? You know, is, is there a lot more production, a lot more preparation, or does it still have sort of the same spirit, but in a different, slightly different way? I think the spirit is still very much there. And I think it's the show that was almost made for Haley. It's almost like this show was made for her, not me. And it was always a show that should have come from my brain but been fronted by her. It was amazing because I had support. I had a team of, you know, like nine people and I had researchers and fantastic other producers working with me. And myself and my associate producer would sometimes fly into the country two weeks before the shoot and set up everything. And then Haley would come in and we'd start filming. So it was just, it was just so much more thorough and well thought out. And we had two-week shoots and long edits and it was just amazing to finally get to see you know how the other half lived you know how tv worked with real budgets and like production standard kind of way of doing everything tv money as opposed to youtube money (laughs) yeah big time i mean it was it was i couldn't i was like really i've been i've been making films for this much and you know i mean I won't go into numbers, but what I was performing for six years was miracles, <laughs> nothing short of miracles. The fact that we managed to produce anything at all, I can't imagine going back to those budgets now that we used to have. Yeah, but you're able to make a lot of creative decisions that, that sort of made up for that, I think. Yeah, no, the freedom was was amazing. I was going to transition, transition us into North Korea. So last summer, I guess, you were in North Korea. How did that come about? Well, after I finished Fashion Week and after I'd finished States of Undress, I decided that I was ready to go back on camera. And, you know, in between, I had been doing other bits of content, which sort of straddled. Vice News was launching at this point. So the stuff that I was doing was moving. It was becoming slightly more serious, always culture-based stories. But I tended to, I was sort of straddling news and entertainment. And it was stuff I was getting was getting more grown up and more serious and Yeah, I just naturally was becoming more of a a news style reporter. And I have family in South Korea and I have a cousin who is like a North Korea expert. So I've always been obsessed with North Korea. I've visited South Korea a lot. I followed North Korea very closely in the media. And the opportunity came up. Vice wanted to try and go back to North Korea. And I had just moved to the US office. So I now, I'd left the London office, moved to the US office. And one of the producers, a conversation started up that we were going back and that I, would I be interested in trying to make it happen and being a part of that? And of course, I, I mean, I just thought, you know, it was an amazing opportunity. I was terrified. But it just sort of happened. It was like, you're the right person to do this and 
it just came at the right time. I just started doing news and the opportunity was there and we went. We got in and we did it. So how many reports did you end up doing? We did two short reports, so two for the nightly news show on HBO, and then we did one longer, like 15, 20-minute piece for the weekly news show on HBO. How long were you there in North Korea? We were there for nine days, which felt like a lifetime. <laughs> so what were, what were your immediate, like, what was your immediate reaction to, to arriving in North Korea? What were the things that surprised you or didn't surprise you? I mean, much the same as everybody else. I mean, the thing about North Korea is that you only get to see what everybody else has already seen. So to an extent, I knew what to expect because you get this sort of Potemkin tour of North Korea. So I'd already seen it all before on TV. I'd seen, because we went on a, on a press junket. We went on one of these press tours that they arrange every few years. So I knew what to expect. I knew what the hotel looked like. I knew what the landmarks looked like that we were going to see. I'd been warned a lot of what to expect. But I didn't, nothing can prepare you. The thing that feels weird is the fact that you feel weird all the time. You feel completely anxious the whole time. Like you just know that you probably made, made the least sensible decision of your life going there. <laughs> You know that you're being watched 24 hours a day. You know that even if you wanted to, you couldn't, you can't break away from the group. You're, it's like being in an open prison. It's the feeling of being, from the moment you arrive, you're like, okay, I have voluntarily walked into prison and locked the door behind myself for 10 days, hopefully no more than 10, than 10 days. Yeah, and you're just under scrutiny the whole time and you, you have to behave like you're in boarding school. And it's exhausting. They sort of control you by, it's all about the element of surprise. So they will phone your room at one in the morning and say, you need to be downstairs in the lobby in four hours. And they never give you the call time the day before because they want to, even, even the, your minders aren't told the plan for the next day because that's how they control society by just sort of by a chain of command withholding information. Though it was really bizarre. So you, you're told to be to show up in the lobby in five hours or four hours, and then what? You're sort of taken in a bus somewhere? And... Yeah, and then you're taken on a, the, you're out for the day. So you're taken on a prescriptive tour of things they want to show you to show that things are going well in, in Pyongyang. You can't easily leave Pyongyang. People can, do go on tours to other parts of the country, but um, it's less common. You're put on a bus, and then you wait on the bus, and then they drive the bus to a sort of security location where you have to take off your coat and jacket and put it through a scanner and, you know, roughed up a bit. Not physically roughed up, but sort of shouted at and made to stand in a line. Then you go back in the bus, then you maybe go and eat something, then you go and you have a tour of like a school or a museum. And, you know, if you want to interact with people, it has they have to be pre-briefed. And that's the annoying thing is, is that it's not very enjoyable. And while you're there, you're, you've got these, these dueling sensations. You're, you feel the weight of the kind of privilege of being here. You're in this place where you know you shouldn't really be. Lots of people would like to go. You're like at the end of the world. So you know, you're like, I'm so lucky to be here. This is a real honor. But at the same time, you're like, get me the out of here <laughs> you know you like I want to go home so you want to enjoy it but you're you've got this constant feeling of dread following you around so it's a very strange strange um state of being 
let's talk about the the one short video that you did, which was it was an outdoor presentation. I guess yeah. it was a a show of military might, and you know, you have a very expressive face. Everybody's <laughs> told you that. You made a few comments while you were filming it, but it was clear that you were a little on edge and massively on edge. And it was just crowds and crowds of, of military people, you know, men and women marching, marching by crowds, you know, shouting and, and applauding. And uh, what were your thoughts as that was going on? Well, that was the whole raison d'etre for our trip. So every year they have a celebration of the founding father of, of the country's birthday. And they use it as an opportunity to showcase their army and their latest weapons, whatever they might be, and sort of galvanize society and invite the foreign press so that we can cover it and show the world how powerful they are. I knew what to expect and I'd seen footage of it before. And I have filmed in sort of difficult, dangerous situations before. You know, I've, I've been to war zones. I, 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 it wasn't that that I wasn't ready for. It was more, I was standing there and I was part of this sort of press junket and you had all the other network news there. And it was my first time doing daily news. You had all the people doing their kind of prescriptive stand-ups like the guy from ABC and CBC and, you know, all those guys. And they were sort of delivering these like robotic stand-ups to camera, which I'm, that's not an insult. That's how news is. And they did a fantastic job. But I was battling the fact that I've, my style of reporting has always been like, I'm just a girl and I'm telling it to you as a girl so that you can relate to me as a person, not just this news robot. Plus the fact that we knew that one of the point of this parade was that one of these rockets that they were showcasing, they claimed had for the first time the ability to reach the US mainland and kill Americans, right? This is what we were being told. We weren't, we weren't able to ch fact check that on the hoof, but this is what we were being told. We, all, we didn't know which of the rockets was this one in question that could kill Americans. And there about 20 rockets went past. So every time a rocket went past, I had to do a new stand-up saying exactly the same thing. This is the rocket that's going to kill America, right? So to speak. So I had to do this same stand-up, you know, 10, 15 times. Well, you must have been really good I... by the time I got to the end of it. <laughs> the, more, the more I said it, the more I was freaking myself out. And I was thinking, that, oh, what am I saying here? I'm saying, I, I'm saying something really historical and monumental. And it just combined with the noise and the all, you know, I think I even say it in, in the piece, I was having like a bit of a sensory overload. And I just couldn't believe that I had the responsibility of delivering this information to the audience, the, the HBO audience. You know, it just felt huge. And I was genuinely freaked out. And rather than try and cover it up, I just thought, I'm not going to pretend that this isn't a big deal because it is. Yeah, that it's somehow normal. Yeah, and it was it, it was really telling. Because, you know, I was going to you talked about this and I was going to ask you about the fact that, you know, you're the way you approach things is the way you approach things sort of the informally and, and through the back door and mm. uh, sort of the sideways uh, that you're not so formal and, and organized. So I can imagine being put in that that type of environment would be very sort of going against just your basic way of doing things. But even so, I mean, in the videos that you did for North Korea, there were a couple of times when you, you tried to go off script where you went and you mm. tried to talk to. North Koreans, and they answered you how, you know, they've been told to answer people. 
And, you know, it was very, very clear that they were very well rehearsed and not necessarily genuine and maybe even scared, which in and of itself, I think just for the viewer who was able to pick up on that, that's, that's a, a whole new wrinkle to, uh, to the story you're covering. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that comes across. I think you can tell that I can only address them in a certain way because I'm being scrutinized. I have to stick to a script. They have to stick to a script. Um, we can't say for sure if they're sticking to a script. Look, maybe the people I spoke to really believed that because that's all they they knew or, you know, we'll never know. I mean, maybe one day, but... But then those two women you spoke to, they walked away and, as you noted, people came up and got their, their personal information they, they, to find out yeah. who they were. Yeah, because they if they say the wrong thing, that's the end for them, potentially, and their family. It's no laughing matter. Yeah, and I remember there was another one where you were at, <laughs> how can you find controversy in a display of flowers? Right. Uh, <laughs> but there were just all these flowers, <laughs> yeah. and in amongst them were, were, were little missiles. And you confronted somebody who was telling you, oh, no, this missile is, this is for uh, satellites. Satellite, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're still not sure why that interaction happened the way it did whether she really believed it was a satellite or whether she had one script for the press and foreigners and one for locals because it's well documented that locals missiles and celebrating them is isn't there's no taboo around them in society so that's why it was there in that display because it's something that people are openly encouraged to be proud of you know the military might so in theory she should know that that's a rocket unless her English wasn't quite up to scratch and she'd just got the word wrong. It's, it's unclear, you know, the audience has to make up their own mind whether she truly was trying to lie to me and get, my, get me off the scent or whether it was just a kind of la a communication problem. But either way, I, I like that interaction. It was quite, I think, as long as it provokes thought, then I feel like it had a place in, in the dock. It, it was just bizarre. <laughs> And I felt sorry for her, you know. I didn't want to, this poor woman, I didn't want to, it's not her fault, I didn't want to take her to task over this, but unfortunately, you know, she was the person delivering this line to me and I had to call her out on it. So now you said you'd been in war zones, you, you were in North Korea. How have these sort of, you know, affected you, changed you, or have they changed you? I would assume that they would. <sighs> unfortunately, they just make you want to do it more. Right, <laughs> like crack. It's bad for you, but you just can't stop. It's I can't I, I can't remember where this quote's from or not quote, but you know how they say if there's an explosion, most people run away from it, but journalists run towards it. It's like that old thing. It's just you know once you've gone to the Gaza Strip and you've gone to North Korea and you've gone to these places where you once when you're there, you feel like you've come to the end of the earth and you've seen you've peered behind the Iron Curtain and you've seen, it's it's a privilege and that's addictive. And I don't know, it, how has it changed, how has it changed me? I don't know, I just, I just love it. I just, I, like I said, I'm still the little girl in the boring British village and the rest of the world fascinates me and people's, I would just want to keep telling stories of people's struggles and and how, you know, these great, political shifts in the world right now and back then, the cultural fallout of that and the human stories around that. I know it sounds cliched, but that's obviously what interests me.
Yeah. Yeah. So do you see that you're going to be spending more of your time behind the camera as you're going forward? Or do you think you're going to look for other opportunities to, to report? Well, it's an interesting time, actually. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Because when I started at Vice, I was one of the few females on camera. And I sort of, that's how I justified doing what I was doing. So I, I've always been cared a lot about diversity. And I didn't want to be, quote unquote, part of the problem. You know, I thought we need people of color on camera and we need more women, you know, more diverse representation. And so, you know, I had to swallow the fact that I, the way I look, you know, I'm perceived privilege. I don't have much money. I haven't had a fantastic life, but that doesn't matter to the audience. They just see privilege when they look at me, right? I mean, Vice is a place for misfits, so I hope I'm not quite what I seem. I, I hope that I'm, you can't judge me by my cover, but I've always sort of... Oh, no, it's, it's clear that of, you're a misfit. I, I, right. I, I picked up on that. <laughs> well, that, yeah, so that's how I felt. I, I kind of felt okay with being on camera. But then the more I did it, I thought, you know, I, we need to give some more people some more chances. And I'm getting a bit older and Vice is, you know, very much a youth brand. So I sort of stepped away. Then I had to think about it and I thought, do you know what? The main problem women are having as they get older is that they become invisible. So I would much rather be like a prolific. I want to be prolific in my 40s and 50s. Do you know what I mean? So right now I'm happy to be a bit more behind the camera, producing more, doing that side of things. And then I feel like I might have a second wind <laughs> when I get a bit older. Because I feel like women, they have their careers and then they end up on the radio because nobody wants to look at them anymore. And I'd like to be able to kind of do something about that. I don't know, it's a grand ambition. But but I also love, I love telling the stories myself. I love being the host. And I'm much more comfortable with myself now than I was when I was younger. Also working with Haley and seeing it from the other side of the camera made me realize I'm a better host than I thought I was. You know, I know how to use myself as a tool and I think that I have a right to tell stories as much as anybody else does. So I think I'll keep doing both, but I really want to be most visible the older I get. That's my little thing. That's my, will be my little gift to the world, whether people want it or not. Now, there are a lot of people, um, a lot of young journalists who are coming in, you know, they, they would love to get into to some type of career path that you have, which, yeah. you know, where it's, you know, that you're, you're doing video, that you're doing entertainment, yeah. you're doing culture, and maybe even also doing things of, you know, greater depth or, you know, more newsy. You know, what, what would you recommend to somebody who's, who's just coming in now? What are the things they should be thinking about? Do you know what? It's so hard because when I started out, I mean, I don't want to be a downer, um, but when I started out, I thought that the media landscape was saturated. Today, eight years later, it's changed almost unrecognizably. Everybody is in media. If you have a mobile phone, you can be a journalist. I'm actually doing a story about someone like, about citizen journalism right now. The competition is insane. I think I got extremely lucky. Yes, I'm not discounting that I have good ideas I have talent. I know how to execute them at this point. But I was in the right place at the right time at a company which I didn't know would blow up in the way it has. I didn't even study journalism or filmmaking, you know. So I, mine was a very unorthodox route. All I can say is just know your target, know your audience and try and 
figure out what your natural talent is. Like, I haven't read all the books in the world, but I know that I'm good at interviewing people. And I was like, that's what I have to capitalize on. Get an internship, work really hard, be nice. Just don't give up. I think that's it, basically. Just, I've just always been nice to people and worked hard and paid my dues and made a lot of cups of tea for people. <laughs> Get to work before your boss, leave after them. That's the traditional way of doing it, but that's just, I, I mean, I don't know. Just if you think you've got it, then just don't give up. So you you mentioned that you, you think you're a good interview. I agree that you are a good interview. That's one of the things, I, one of the reasons I wanted to reach out and try to, to get you on the podcast, because you have a, a certain way of, you know, getting really, you know, identifying the person in the room to speak to and, and getting them to sort of open up. What's your trick? What's your, what's your method, I guess, is probably a better way. So I've, I've managed to identify my method later on. I didn't know that I had one until I saw other people struggling to interview people. I think naturally I'm lucky in that I, for some reason, I don't know why, I have a natural ability to disarm people. I think it might have something to do with my height or the way I look or the way I speak because my whole life, when people first meet me, I'm intimidating to them. So I have to work extra hard to overcompensate for that and disarm them and show them that I'm not threatening. And I, I put the attention on them and try and make them feel special and comfortable and listened to. And in doing that my whole life, it's prepared me for this job perfectly because I can make people feel, oh, this is what I've been told, I can make people feel like they're the only person in the room. Listen to them. I've witnessed other people starting out interviewing, and the rookie mistake is they're so, so much more worried about how their question sounds than what answer they're trying to get. And they forget to ask simple questions like, why? You know, they'll, they'll ask someone a question and they won't follow it up properly because they're trying to stick to a prescribed, they're trying to confirm this bias they've already got in their head about what they want. Or don't be afraid of, you know, awkward silences because often if, you, if there's a silence, someone's going to fill it. So don't let it be you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if you're a naturally curious person and you have empathy, then those are the, that's what's going to propel you. You know, just be curious and be interested. And that's how it works, really. Yeah, it's just as easy as that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, simple. It's, it's simple. It's simple. Anybody can do it. <laughs> Charlotte, thank you for coming on the podcast. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry I talk so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also download our podcast on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Want to get the latest news about our podcast? Then sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and subscribe. You'll get exclusive content, inside information about uh, upcoming episodes, and live events we've got in the works. Be sure to subscribe today. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. What's Working in Washington podcast. 
with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Finish the Game podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean across the 10 to 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. 